This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And, and, and this one is a great, great thrill for me. You know, I grew up on the music of the 70s and 80s, whether it's Cheap Trick or Aerosmith or, or Motley Crue or Kiss or, or, you know, Ted Nugent or whoever it was. And some of my favorite records were produced by Tom Werman. And on this episode, I actually get to sit in between a conversation of Ted Nugent and Tom Werman. Now, now the amazing thing is, so I, I so let's let's see how this gets started. Uh, about a week ago, I interviewed Ted Nugent, and we talk about uh, you know his guitar playing and why he should be considered one of the top 100 guitars in the states. And we talk about the new album and the new tour and, and all this stuff. And and somewhere during the interview, Ted says to me, "You know, it'd be really cool is if we get Tom Werman on the line." And and have a producer-artist discussion about the music. And I said, hey, I know Tom. I'll, I'll get Tom on the line. And I can't speak for Ted. Ted Ted speaks perfectly well for Ted. But but I, I, I got a sense of he, he doesn't think I'm, I'm legitimate. Like in the sense of he, he doesn't think I'm actually going to get Tom on the line. I'm just sort of blowing smoke up his tuchus as I'm doing the show. Uh, so I said to myself, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to do this. So I, I emailed Tom and I said, uh, you want to come on, talk to Ted? And the, the answer I got back was, I'd love to do it, but we're not doing politics, no politics. And I was like, it's fine. I don't do a political show. So that, that's, that's not even an, an issue. I mean, that, that's, completely uh, a non-starter. You know, I talk to people uh, that are musicians that have uh, views on both sides of the spectrum, uh, views about, uh, you know, how to eat uh, from vegan to to vegetarian to don't do this, don't eat meat. I have people with all those views on the show and, and that's not what I do. We talk rock and roll. We talk albums. We talk tours. We talk past history of, remember in 1975 when that's what I do. So to get Tom on, that was easy. Just like, yeah, don't worry about it. Anyway. Now, now just imagine here, this little kid, who's no longer a little kid, by the way, uh, grew up listening to the music that these two men made. And now I'm sitting in between them. I mean, obviously all on the phone, but... I'm I'm figuratively sitting between them as they discuss making albums together. And now only Ted and Tom could confirm this, but I got a sense that they hadn't spoken in a long time, you know, 10 years, 15 years and all that. Now, I could be absolutely wrong when I say that. I, I have no clue and I didn't ask them, but I get a sense that they hadn't spoken in a long, long time. And, and that's just a perception, a feeling, whatever you want to call it. And you'll you'll hear it at the beginning of the tape. You know, Tom's like, oh, I thought, Tom's like, oh, hey, this is really Ted on the phone. I, I thought this was a joke or something. It's like, well, no, I, I don't do morning zoo. I, I don't do comedy, though I am quite funny looking. I, I don't do comedy. Um, 
And, um, you know, it, it took a couple of seconds to, to convince Tom that that was really Ted on the line. Now, I am going to play the entire recorded conversation. And now the show is always unedited, but at the beginning of every interview, there's usually a couple of seconds of, hey, uh, you know, hey, Ted, how's it going? Or, you know, hey, Gene, or hey, Paul, how's it going? Uh, let me hit record here. We'll talk about the new album, the new tour, and, uh, you know, three, two, one. Uh, hey, I'm speaking to uh, Paul Stanley. Uh, welcome to the show, whatever. There's always that, and that that part I, I, I take out because it's it's not relevant. But on this one, uh, I'm gonna I'm going to play it from the moment Ted gets on the phone. Now, mind you, I can only record the call as as the call happens, and um, I can't set the record before. So so you're going to hear me cut in kind of harsh, like "Hey Ted," or you know "Ted," you know something like that. Uh, so it's not a bad edit. That's that's just uh, that's just the way. That's just the moment when the record. Anyway, whatever, irrelevant detail. But I'm going to play the whole thing, and I'm going to play sort of Ted waiting on the line while I uh, dial in and get uh, Tom on the line. And you'll hear that initial uh, conversation, and then you'll get right into the interview. Now, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, and head over to my socials at Mitch Lafon on Twitter, and and by the way, hey Twitter, I'm at almost thirteen thousand followers with almost four million Twitter impressions a month, and I'm not verified. Like what the? F- Come on, give me a little blue mark. And I honestly don't know why that blue mark is so important. But it really is. I would get a major kick of seeing a little blue check mark by my name. So come on, Twitter. Four million Twitter impressions per month. That's got to be worth a blue check mark. Anyway, um, so, you know, hit me up on Twitter or, or at Mitch Lafon. Uh, so that, that's the Twitter or, you know. The um, uh, you know, or or the or, or the Facebook page, uh, the personal one, or the Rock Talk one, or even on Instagram, if you want at Mitch underscore Lafon. I would like to know if you could have been in my position and do an interview between two um, artists and producer of your time. Who would you want to sit in between and have this conversation with? Now, Ted and Tom fantastic you know uh loved it but you know do you want to sit in a conversation between lars ulrich and bob rock do, do, if you had a chance to be in my position who would it be would it be well i'm trying to think uh, paul stanley and ron nevison from the crazy nights or, or bob ezrin and gene simmons or alice cooper and bob ezrin or who would you like to sit you know who would be that your your your, your wet dream, I guess, for the, for the lack of a better word. Those were, those were two words. Anyway, um, before we get to this, please, please head over to uh, loudtracks.com forward slash Mitch and pick up a beautiful Mitch t-shirt. They are absolutely glorious and dignified. And I'm telling you, you would look great. And you you, you would. You, you would look great in a Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon t-shirt. And I'm pretty sure your husband or your wife or your friends would also look delightful 
in a Rock Talk t-shirt. So, so pick them up. They are available now, shipping now, and all that wonderful stuff. And here we go. Without further ado, here is sort of like a, you know, 13-year-old fantasy of if I could just get Rockstar A and Producer A on the phone and sit in on a conversation, what would that be like? And and I got to experience it. And I have to tell you, I have to tell you, there's not a lot of Mitch in this episode. The, uh, you know, Ted calls in. I get Tom on the line on a three-way call. And we're off and running. And I, I, I haven't listened back to the tape uh, uh, before doing this, but as far as I remember, it was about 20 minutes in, really, before I even got to say hello, you know. So, so you, you anyway, um, I will, I will also state a very big thank you to, um, to Ted's people that helped set this up. Very big thank you to Ted for doing a second interview with me, literally with like within four days or whatever it was. And of course, Tom, Tom, sweetheart, thank you. And uh, do do go out, uh, do folks do go on to the Google, and I always say the Google because I sh- it's just funnier. Uh, go on to the Google and type in Tom Worman's uh, bread and uh, bread, yes, uh, bed and breakfast. Look it up; it's in the Berkshires, which is, I believe, in Massachusetts. Her, her, it's a it's a tongue twister right there. It's in Mass. Uh, I've stayed there. Glorious glorious property you will have a great great time um and speaking of great times here is the ones well it's not the one and only it's uh here are two really great people uh ted nugent and tom Worman. we'll get uh tom on the phone this will be exciting that's important got to get that boy on here celebrate this stuff i know i know he he asked that we don't talk politics but i don't like talking politics anyway so everybody's happy (laughs) Um, poor tom he doesn't want to be squashed by the crowbar of truth (laughs) logic common sense and republican constitutionality that's okay that's fine that's fine here we go let me let me dial him in and let's get him on the line here all right let's let's hopefully the connection will be good let's see Hello? Oh, Tom? Hello? Tom, yeah. we've got Ted on the line. Ted? Yes. Tom, greetings. Ted. Happy summertime 2019, you old rock and roll son of a bitch. How are you? It must be Ted. It is Ted. <laughs> the one and only Ted Nugent. There you it, go. It is well, Ted. Tom, you know, Tom, you're partially responsible for my eternal musical erection, so you're going to have to deal with it. So I say grab that son of a bitch and drive it home, baby. Okay, all right. This I, I this is definitely Ted. <laughs> Tom, oh, it's number a, one. Uh, Tom, number dude, one. I thought, how are I thought you it might the be family? an imposter. No, I Tom, thought it might be an imposter. Oh, great, great. Thank you. I mean, really good, really good. Yeah, you same know, here. And you? Lucky us, huh? You know, yeah, it's so we good. Are we carve out the perfect American dream in spite of this crazy world around us every day. And I cannot tell crazy. you how excited I am to have you on the phone and talk to you about <laughs> the things that we love, the music that still resonates in our guts, man. So God bless you for that. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks. Uh, it was, I, I, it's nice to talk to you. We don't talk very much anymore. 
But I don't talk to too too many of the people from my former life anymore. I think if I may, but, Mitch is actually the host of this, but I may I may just take the throttle and drive forward. But I think the course. most important thing well, is yeah. called Westwood <laughs> One's Rock Talk. Here we are in 2019. I'll be 71 this year. How old are you, Tom? You're a kid. I'll be 75. Well, I respect my elders, but at our age, yeah. you know, when you and I met, the music was such a powerful, overwhelming, yeah. you know, a dangerous, positive force in our lives. I still love. I think I love it more now than ever. But in your, at your, at seventy-five, do you still cling to those grinding original rhythms that Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and the Stones and the Kinks re- brought back to America? Do you oh, still love that stuff like I do? Absolutely. I'm, and I have a gym playlist. I go to the gym three times a week. Without my music, there is no workout. And I have, I have, you know, Bluetooth earbuds, and I crank them, and they inspire me. Mostly, I, I must admit, and you may not like this, I don't know, mostly it's ZZ Top. Sure. You know, How can you not? I got on stage with ZZ Top uh, a couple months ago. And we played oh, yeah? Jailhouse Rock, and it was, you know, I've known those guys forever, and they do yeah. epitomize the translation of what Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and Little Richard created, but with such Great. a soulful black grind. They are the masters of the groove, man. Billy's good. Billy's good blues player. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, and great Chug, great rhythm guitar Chug. Why would you? Why would you be suspicious that I would love ZZ Top like you love ZZ Top? I'm not suspicious that you would love them. Uh, I, I I was a little afraid that you would say, "What? Why do you not listen to Ted Nugent in the gym?" You know? I listen to all music. I know you listen to all music, and I bet you, I bet you, Stranglehold and uh, Wang Dang, Sweet oh, yeah. Dang is somewhere on that list. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, Stranglehold. You know, is my. Uh, I always tell people it's my. It was the first song I ever mixed, and uh, and I and I also tell them that you you know I sent it to you for your approval and 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 I got back I think you called me and you said I I love what you what you did because it was a remix you know Lou mixed the first version and I, and I said he, you you said I love what you did uh, with the guitars on Stranglehold. But I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Don't ever think of doing that again without asking me first. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's celebrate that. I talked about this at length with Mitch, but it's important after all these years. We did that back in 74, and it was when I dropped the name Amboy Dukes, and I decided, damn it, I have a musical vision that I'm going to cling to that that turns me on to the most. But what Tom is talking about is there's one note in the... the, And you've got to admit, when I came out of that room and played that original uh, guitar solo on the take one, while I'm playing the rhythm track... Um, the first thing Tom said is, my God, there was some magic stuff there with a little editing. It'll really be perfect. And I said, if you, if you edit one of those licks out, I will shoot you in the kneecap and put you in the basement. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> well, yeah, but I, but, but it was a great, it was, it, it was tempting, too tempting to, to make a duet out of that descending line. 
In fact, on stage, you know, and and when I did that lick, I, you know, Tom, I think I exalted and just I was mesmerized when I came in because it wasn't really a a a a dirty, noisy lead guitar tone that we usually go for. It was a real crisp Fender uh, twin reverb that I was using for the rhythm tone. So those licks that I played on the original Stranglehold, I had never played any of those ever before. And I had to go learn it because it has such an identity. I felt to be yeah. true to that that wonderful song. I had to reproduce that exact solo, which I do every night. And yeah. I, when I when it comes to that descending, uh, you know, illegal. I don't think yeah. God authorized those notes. That illegal descending uh, uh, arpeggio. Um, I actually step on a little uh, <laughs> echo thing, so it goes, that in, that in, that in, oh, and it yeah. harmonizes with itself. So, yeah, it's, it's a Good great you. moment. You did great, man. Good for you. That's yeah. great. This, this by the well, way, might yeah. be the easiest episode I've ever done. I haven't had a chance to say anything. Uh, Ted, this actually might Please. be one of your podcast episodes. It might be a... Ted Nugent Danger Zone podcast episode at this well, point. Well, you know, Mitch, you and I, you and I love the music. Tom loves the music, so I, I bet you, as a, even though I'm the artist, I'm the guitar player, and I, I created these songs. I'm, I'm fascinated as a music lover. I, I listen to that stuff, and if that wasn't me playing that music, I'd go see the guy who did. I love that music, so I would probably, <laughs> you know, probe. I would probably probe Tom Worman and Ted Nugent the same way you would. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, okay, so, so let well, me ask you this, Tom. Uh, um, just real quick, you know, going into to 75 and, and the first album, what yeah. you know? How did you sort of get the gig? Was it sort of you know CBS or Epic said, okay, you're the you're our our label producer. Go handle this. No, did you petition no, I, to, okay. I didn't get the gig. I, uh, here's what happened. I didn't know what a production deal was. I went to Illinois to see Ted at IIT, or as he said when he came on stage, IIT. And I saw him, I loved him, went backstage. We agreed on music pretty quickly. In fact, I remember when Ted said, I believe it was, yeah, well, I knew you got the music when you came backstage, and I saw your clenched fist. Yeah, and and, uh, and and we and and so so it appeared that a production deal was that it gave Ted's manager the right to produce the record. So I didn't. I had asked um, Pete Townsend's lawyer if Pete might consider producing the record, and she laughed. And then, uh, fortunately, she very nicely sent me a uh, a letter of congratulations after the album went gold. Um, but anyway, there's Lou Futterman in the studio, and he's a nice guy, but he doesn't know that much about rock and roll, and I think I do. So I kept going into the studio, which was close by the office, so I could protect my investment, which was Ted. And uh, and I uh, apparently made so many contributions to the album that Lou very graciously uh, gave me co-producer credit. And then the album exploded, and Abracadabra, I was a producer. And that's the way it happened. Well, I think the most important part of that story, if I may, is that you may. Tom... 
Tom was the music guy, and I always salute. I don't know how many of my interviews you, you hear, Tom, but I do them all the time. I do media, yeah. if not every yeah. day, every other day of my life, because I like to celebrate the things I'm passionate about, and it starts with the music. Yeah. Lou Futterman, I salute because he stuck with me. But the real story here, Mitch, is that every label... Everybody in the music industry turned me down, just like Pete Townsend's manager snickered. Ah, that, 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 I think he was a feedback guitar player with the. It was a, a lawyer. It's it, a lawyer. They literally turned me down. Everybody turned me down because they didn't yeah. get the pulse of my American heartland shit kicker music. But Tom <laughs> got it because he watched the audience, and even if you didn't see the audience, insanity. Right. That loved every liquid, everything I said, and and the excitement, and the energy, and the defiance, and the the musical tightness of Cliff and Rob and Derek. It was literally the best of the best, and so Tom got that <laughs> and fought for me. But Lou Futterman stuck with me all those years and got me this epic contract. But it really wasn't. I always, and Mitch will tell you all the interviews we've done. Tom Worman and Tony Reale were members of the band. Their Tony, ears right. were tuned in to the real yeah. pulse of what Chuck and Bo and Little Richard and how the Stones and the Beatles and the Kinks and the Who, how they translated the grunt of the guitar, the depth of the bass, the real drum sound of the drums, what Cliff and Rob and Derek and I produced was the quintessential sound of rock and roll, and Tom and Tony, I can't believe you didn't go deaf going out there and finding the sweet spot on all those Fender amplifiers and all the speakers, yeah. but Mitch, the effort that Tom and Tony put into that, in the Ted Nugent, the Free For All, and the Cat Scratch, and the Double Live Gonzo, the effort they put in to keep my musical vision exactly how it sounded in the room, which is almost impossible, but you guys did it, and I've always celebrated that and given you super positive credit because to have a team that has ears to hear the things that we love about that great rock and roll and make sure it gets on the tape it's 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 as borderline impossible as any production procedure there is yeah. yeah well the reason we could do it the reason we were enthusiastic about it and had the energy and the commitment to do it is that you had done most of the musical work before we walked into the studio. Um, and I've said that every time people ask me in, in interviews about Ted Nugent, I say, well, I was really not a producer at that time, but I was more quality control because Ted had every note of every instrument in his head uh, when we walked into the studio. And so, you know, we'd make a suggestion now and then, but it was really about you know, making it sound the way Ted wanted it to sound. Because, um, you know, usually with, with a lo most of the other bands I, I produced uh, subsequently, and that was about 50 of them, uh, 50 records, um, you know, I, I would work hard to make musical suggestions. In Ted's case, really wasn't necessary. So, well, I had spent my whole life, you know, playing since the 50s, not my 50s, the 1950s. <laughs> I had spent my whole yeah. life honing this music that every audience, I played thousands and thousands of concerts. And when you're clean and sober and you love yeah, the music yeah, like yeah. I do, your radar picks up on the, the essence. I'm playing for myself. I'm 
very selfish. Yep. This yep. is what I love. But I would see the audiences, and they would love what I love, because I'm a music fan. And, Tom, you yeah. and Tony were able to capture that. And, again, it, yeah. the, the guitar tone, I'm sure a lot of the bands you produced, I know them by name, and I know the guitar players, they, they have such right. a live, distorted, fuzzy tone that it doesn't translate on a record. And so you have to go in there and kind of re-engineer and capture a tone that's more uh, more uh, Keith Richards than Jimi Hendrix. You know, that's a generalization, but I think it's pretty accurate. Would you agree, Tom? Well, yeah. Keith is, Keith is not quite as precise in terms of tone or, or technique as but I strive for. But that you for, can capture it. Yeah. As I strive for. I like, you know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's no question that I, you know, that I tamper with uh, with guitar tones between the stage and the studio. Um, but but I I always saw my job as one of uh, making hit singles, uh, getting a band on the radio so they could capture the attention of the music world, and then they could do basically what they wanted, you know. And the deal is, when you say that you love music, you made you made you you play what you love. You play for yourself. I also produced for myself and signed for myself because I said, boy, I love this guy. I love this Ted Nugent guy. I love Cheap Trick. I love Molly Hatchet. I love Boston. Whatever it was, when I signed them, people bought them. So that was my job. Yeah, and, and you got to admit, I don't think it's ever talked about because we're talking technical stuff now, the recording process and our love for the music. But tell me, Worman, I mean, I, I really have a genuine question. Did you have as much yep. fun with any other band as you did with us? <laughs> no, I no, I came close with Cheap Trick. I came uh, yeah, close with great Cheap guys. Trick. But, great guys. You know, um, but, but no, uh, especially in the later years, we won't mention any names, you know, because I just wasn't going to take it, so to speak. Um, yes, I. <laughs> so, 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 so we, you know, I had, a, I really, it was, it wasn't. A lot of that was not fun and quite challenging. We did have fun, absolutely. I went. I remember the night when, when uh, after the session, you and I went over to Alex Cooley's electric ballroom, and and uh, Ronnie Van Zant was sprawled on a table, unconscious, and uh, and you said, "Watch this." And you <laughs> leapt over a few tables, and you went over, and you grabbed him by the shoulders, and you started shaking him violently, and said, "Hey, Ronnie, how you doing, man? What's up, Ronnie?" <laughs> he was, he yeah, was like, you know, I, I, unconscious, if you wasted. If, if you find somebody who's comfortably numb, they can be a prop for a good time. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, that it was, it was fun in Atlanta, and we made those records quickly and cheaply. Yeah, yeah. and because we were already tuned in, we weren't going in going, geez, I wonder what kind of songs we should play, because I write, I'm always <laughs> writing songs, and I love this. I love the way I express myself, and the, my lyrics obviously were politically incorrect before there was political incorrectness, but I had such a passion for it, and Rob, I mean, my God, what a bass player, and Cliff, what a yeah. drummer, yeah. and Derek, what a great, great musician and singer, so we really had a finely tuned machine 
that, that, that delivered the music that we loved night after night after night. So it was just a matter of a slight tweak of Sonics to make sure that the tape could accept what we were playing. Because I played so... Remember, I, I would come in with yeah. all my Fender yeah. Twins and Dual Showman Bottoms, and there was just no way to capture some of those sounds. <laughs> no, no. Well, and Tom, Tom, let me no, ask you this. As a producer, did you have a lot of bands that came in just completely unprepared, no songs, nothing rehearsed, and just said, all right, we're here, let's get started? I mean, did that happen? No. Where... No. Okay. No, no, but... no. You you know, I made sure that we rehearsed and rearranged everything basic, the basics, drums, bass, rhythm, guitar, and then... Uh, you know, we'd, we'd record it in rehearsal on a boombox, and then we'd take the boombox into the studio and refer to it. So the songs were there. Um, with Cheap Trick, frequently Rick would come in with fragments of songs, like, um, and we would take a verse from one song and maybe a chorus from another song and actually put them together and, and, and make, make a real song. But certainly with debut albums, the bands are very together. Probably Motley was the least prepared and you I can know imagine. the and, and, and as, as humans they were least prepared they were they kind of played it <laughs> by they, ear so to speak when they delved into the human area <laughs> <laughs> great well, band I mean, though great band you have to admit tommy lee one of the greatest yeah. drummers that ever lived no doubt and they made tommy some is great great, great songs, tommy and, and bunny bunny and tommy my i was really yep. lucky to work with those two those two drummers Oh, yeah, Buddy's no, like so. a Ringo Starr, wasn't he? He was. He he was great for as much for what he did not play as for what he did play. He was sure. spare. Groove and rhythm, baby. Yeah. And and yeah, good stuff yeah. though, man. But uh, Tom, if I've never, I know I've done it a number of times, but I can't do it often enough. And that is to thank you for sticking with me in that era when the industry was turning me down, and you saw the the authority of the music that we were creating that you captured it like you did. So it was a great, oh, there was, great time there, in my there life. Was no question. There was no question. As soon as I saw you play, uh, that band play at IIT, I said, wow, we can do something here. We can really do something. Because I wasn't dying to see you know, Ted Nugent. I didn't really know much about the Amboy Dukes. So I went in there, you know, willing you know, because Lou came into the office and said, hey, uh, guess what? Ted Nugent's available. And I said, well, I know Journey to the Center of Mind, but but I don't know too much about Ted. So IIT was eye and ear opening. And then the Lansing, Michigan Ice Arena. Sure. That, that's when awesome. I brought Popovich. I brought Popovich to that show. With and, Aerosmith, and open, yeah. Opening, yeah, opening with Aerosmith and Krebs was there and and that's when I said, you know, there's a real big audience for this guy because because yeah. the people came in, they all they all were wearing uh, motorcycle boots and denim, head to toe, long shaggy hair, and you could tell they ended up a really tough work week and wanted to blow their brains out, and and uh, Ted uh, enabled them to do that. Let me ask yeah, you this, Here it is, 2019. I will hit the road in July, and I'll tour uh, six weeks, do six nights a week, and I still play songs from the Amboy Dukes. Hell, I'll still play some Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley stuff, 
but I play all those classics, and uh, I'm telling you, every night we get ready to go on stage, we play uh, the Stones' Street Fighting Man before we go on. And oh, I'm, yes. like a, I'm like a horny kid oh, in the garage yes. with my first amplifier. I can't wait to get out there and unleash these damn songs. And even yeah, though I probably yeah. shouldn't uh, expose it, when we go on the road this year for the first time since about 74, we're going to open up with Stranglehold and, and just play ah, nothing but yes. your songs all night long. So let me ask well, you about this. people are still listening. People what? are still listening to, to, to the music of that decade. It's a great no decade. But, 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 Tom, you said that your goal was to get singles and to get stuff on the radio. Right. And, and the first song on the first album is, of course, Stranglehold at eight and a half minutes. Was there any pressure on you to cut it down to a four-minute radio single? Was there? Did you come in and go, really, eight minutes? I mean, what no. was sort of your – no, okay. Not at the time, uh, although Hey Baby was, you know, more of an obvious choice for a single. It wasn't, you know, Stranglehold was complex. It was really complex. It was threatening. It wasn't, you know, Hey Baby, take a ride in my car. Here we go. We're going to rock all night long. Uh, you know, it was quite it was quite different in its sound and, and its message. Uh, but but. You know, at that point, AM and FM were just really separating. Um, FM radio had just started, and it was strictly album play. Strictly. So business, you know, commercially speaking, if you had a really good album, um, a really good album that played a lot on FM radio, uh, you could probably sell maybe 400, 300, 400,000 records. If you had a hit single that was simultaneously played on AM radio, exclusively almost, you could sell 3 million albums. So it, it became evident that we needed hit singles. And you can see what happened with Cat Scratch Fever. You know, when I, when I saw that, I, I, I don't know where that was, maybe Atlanta, I saw it for the first time. Uh, right after the show, I, I went and called uh, my boss, Steve Popovich, and I said, hey, Ted's finally written a big hit single. <laughs> and, and I was right. You know, so Great song, man. I love uh, playing that way. So, yes, right. it's good. What, every single guitar player after you made that song, every single guitar player, lead or acoustic or rhythm that I worked with would go in the studio, sit down and play that lick and laugh. And I, I said, you are not the first to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, basically it's an extension of the original honky tonk. Right. And you hear right. that lick and let's spend the night together or satisfaction. That. Yeah, and I just true. added yeah. a Detroit, you know, multiple guitar tone, you know, multiple strings to it instead of just the two note honky tonk. But there's right. there's that lick. Right. If you really listen, it's in millions and millions of songs. I just play it in a down and dirty way. Yeah, and, yeah. and you've redone it on your new album as Backstrap Fever. Backstrap Fever. Actually, it was originally written uh, for a golf course. They had a beeper problem. They were flooding all the greens, and they, they, but you weren't allowed to trap them, so I wrote a song called Can't Trap Beaver. <laughs> Not <really. laughs> I don't know. That, 
That's um, like going around the campfire. Yeah. But around the campfire all these years, I do a lot of charity work with military and law enforcement and, and terminally ill kids. And there, there's always a campfire time with an acoustic guitar, and I play this song called Fred Bear that has just become an anthem for uh, just oh, yeah. people all around the world. And when I play the Fred Bear song, um, I'll also whip out. They all want to hear Cat Scratch Fever, and on an acoustic guitar, we just start singing Backstrap Fever, because the backstrap is that sacred morsel of flesh along the upper spine of herbivores that I kill every year to feed my friends. And so Backstrap Fever becomes like an anthem at my campfires every year. Uh, huh. I haven't um, heard it. Well, you're going to have to hear it. It's it, the, the new album, The Music Made Me Do It, is, is fantastic. I mean, it, it's solid. It's a solid, solid album. You should definitely check that out. Let me ask you this quickly, though, on the production side. Um, Free For All, Cat Scratch Fever. There's always three mm. producers mentioned. There, there's you and Lou and then Cliff Davies, who also played drums. How did you sort of separate the production credits or or how were these production credits and, and you know, how did you come up with them or – what was sort of everybody's responsibilities? Well, it certainly wasn't it wasn't my decision. <clears throat> I think Lou did that. Ted, maybe you know, uh, Cliff, you know, was the chief. Um, uh, beside Ted, for, of the other three, he was the most um, contributory in terms of musical ideas and and. Uh, I think he said well, Cliff was a trained musician. He was a jazz musician with yeah. the uh, English yeah. band If, and he was such a virtuoso. He could play anything, and his timing was impeccable. He latched on to the grooves that I created when I opened a song with a signature lick, right. and he was able to become a, a, a samurai with my pulse of my songs. And so Tom can tell you that I didn't have a whole lot of patience. I, I recorded the damn song, and I would put down yeah. either the rough vocal or, I, or do my lead vocal, and I'd play my guitar solos, which was always just a, a sonic orgy of musical adventure. I just loved doing that. I still love doing that. But I would leave the control in Cliff's hands, and certainly Tom's hands, um, because Lou didn't have the ear or the, the total understanding of the the outrageous right. elements of my music. And, and you you wanted it noisy. You wanted the drums noisy. You wanted the clang. You wanted that that that, that uh, uh, ambient sound somehow that we had in the room or on stage. You wanted to do your damnedest to reproduce that. And Cliff was a technician as well as a, as a, uh, a, a spiritual drummer. So I would leave some of the technical chores in his hands, and he would tweak some of the sounds and the frequencies because I just didn't have the patience to do that. But I got to right. tell you, the the more that Tom um, relegated authority to others is when the the essence of my musical sound vision started to uh, be compromised somewhat. I'm not I'm not blaming Cliff. God rest his soul. He was one of the greatest musicians, a great gentleman, a work ethic, a Herculean dedicated band member. I have nothing negative to say about any of those guys. But yeah. Tom was the guy that when there was when you tried to add a little bass or a little a little bottom or a little top to something, I always relied on Tom to go, No, 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 no don't change that. No, maybe a little mids, but don't mess with that. And that is so subjective. And and yeah. Cliff yeah. would Cliff would do his, his very best to represent my my frequency preferences along with Tom because I just didn't have the patience to stay in the studio that long. 
Yeah, yeah, it's true. And 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 Lou has fancied himself more of a vocal specialist. Good so, grief! <laughs> he did. He did. I know it. You know? I know it. <laughs> yeah. But you're the I guy who got when... the performances from. Uh, um, from Derek, and and the reason we had Meatloaf come in on free falls because Lou could not get a performance out of Derek, and it took you and Cliff to do that. Well, the real reason was that uh, that uh, along with that was that Derek spent the night in jail, <laughs> and, he, and, and and Lou lost patience. He said, "God damn it, I'm I'm not I I will not put up with this. I'm going to teach him a lesson." Do you know anybody who could sit in for? And I said, "Well, I know this really thunderous vocalist in in New York, and I don't know what he's doing, but he's certainly up to the task. I don't know if he, I don't know if he's compatible. You know, well, if he was an old friend of mine. and I went way back. You know, yeah, yeah. So, so he was on a plane the next day, and and there he was, there and he nobody was. seems to notice. Uh, uh, you know, maybe they don't. There are no credits to read on the back of the album sleeve anymore. But but very few people noticed that Meatloaf made an appearance on a Ted Nugent album. That is like you know oil and water in a way. Yeah, writing on the wall, Street Rats. He sang uh, together. He sang some brilliant stuff. In fact, we're doing uh, writing on the wall. Uh, we're doing a medley of Street Rats and Death by Misadventure. And some of the songs that uh, Meatloaf sang, we do those on stage because the licks are so damn powerful and fun to play. We're doing a whole bunch of those. Yeah, well, he, yeah, well, he, he did he five, five songs on Free For All, right? Yeah, See, yeah four or five. Four yeah. or five, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, and, and he did them quickly. But, I mean, you know, Derek was great, but he was just a little behaviorally challenged at the time. And, you know... I really and it got worse. But anyhow, was I was I the easiest <laughs> guy to get a vocal performance out of, or what? Well, yes, oh, sure. Because <laughs> how about Motor City you, Madhouse? What a it, what a vocal that is, huh? <laughs> attitude. It's, a little, it's attitude. All attitude. A lot, lot of attitude. Yeah, Let I invented ask. attitude. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Let me ask you this, uh, Tom and 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 Ted. Uh, double live Gonzo, because. We, yeah. we we have spoken about how you saw Ted live and you went, yeah, th- I got to work with this guy. The, the, and listen, I saw Ted back in 79 or 80, I guess it was, uh, coming through Montreal. Actually, it ended up on that Intensities album. Um, Intensities, about- one of the great titles of all time. Yeah. Oh. Intensities, Intensities and Ten Cities. <laughs> But but let's talk to me about this double live Gonzo because it. you know Peter Frampton and and Kiss had the Alive albums and and so everybody was doing these 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 live things. Um, yeah. Were you? Yeah. What were you, what was that like going into there? Because you know that Ted on stage delivers, but it's certainly yep. a very different thing to deliver it on vinyl. Um, how did you go about getting that performance and getting those different shows called together and and saying okay we're going to do a live album. How do we make it, you know, as if we were at a concert? Well, it, we were at a concert. Um, you take, I got to say that you take certain liberties. Everyone, every band took certain liberties with live albums in those days. And you would repair this and repair that. And occasionally you would, you know, manufacture not manufacture but you'd borrow one audience from uh one show and put them 
you know, in another show uh, or add them to the audience from another show. They were all Ted Nugent audiences. Uh, but but we didn't like, you know, like there was one with too many firecrackers and too <laughs> many whistles. And we would, we would uh, you know, I, I would, not Ted didn't, didn't suggest this, but I'd combine two audiences and I'd say, give me, give me some of that. That well, I think the very best part of, of Double Life Gonzo, certainly I'm proud of that. I yeah. love the whole record. It's just outrageous. But one of my favorites yeah, is the, we had a technical problem on the performance from San Antonio of Baby Please Don't Go. Rob's bass had some kind of uh, glitch in it. Yeah. So I went in the studio right, yeah. and I, I, I overdubbed and redid the whole bass line. And then I overdubbed some of the vocal stuff in my favorite pot. And if you go to my Ted Nugent Facebook, people are always referencing that at the end of Baby Please Don't Go, on Double Life Gonzo in San Antonio. Uh, oh, yes. The original, oh, yes. The original vocal is there. It goes, San Antonio! San Antonio! And when I overdubbed, I went, suck my body <laughs> We We've been quoting that in this house for a long time. It was, it was very funny. And then, and then actually on one song, I don't think it was on the live album. Maybe it was. Um, Derek uh, utters a phrase at the end of one song. Uh, oh well, that's up, that, that was my that was a, that was stranglehold that is, is crystal clear. And when I pointed that's it right. out to people, that's right. when yeah. I did when I did the rough vocal to show them where I wanted the cadence and the basic melody and the, and how <laughs> I sang those lyrics, those that love song, stranglehold. At the end of it, just before the big A chord, when I'm doing the reintro for the for the crescendo at the end. I, yeah. I said a certain phrase, a certain street slang, and I actually said it. And then when Derek actually sang the song, he repeated it. And at the end, it's dot, no. dot, come on. And if you yeah. listen closely, there's no <laughs> question what the dot, dot is. And it's, it's, yeah. I still say it on stage every night. But that you know, there's an outrageous <laughs> uninhibitedness in the studio when nothing is sacred. And I'll quote Richard Pryor and Lenny Bruce and and anybody I damn please. And so at the end of Stranglehold in the original recorded studio version on my solo album at '75, if you listen, it is unambiguous what Derek repeats of what I did when I was being a smartass on the rough track. And, right. and when I point it out to people, they go. I can't believe I've never heard that. It's so obvious yeah, what he's right. saying. <laughs> it is. It has to be pointed out. I'm going to have to go. to listen, Mitch. You're I'm going to go check very that closely, out. But if you listen, it's not, it's not ambiguous what he said. <laughs> oh, I've got to go listen to that. Just real quick, on um, after Weekend Wars, so you do these five albums together. Tom, yeah. you don't work on the next one, State of Shock. Ooh. Where what happened at that point where the relationship after five albums you moved on was it just because Cheap Trick and other bands were taking so much time was it I've said and done everything I can do with Ted what 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 sort of like okay I'm not going to do Status Shock Lou does but but you said all right it's not me yeah I, it may have been a scheduling thing it may have been I've, I've done as much as I can for Ted. Um, and God knows know, we missed it, you. Yeah. Well, thanks. It, it's a long time. It's been a long time, and I'm not sure exactly what it was. But you know, in in terms of producing careers, five albums, if you know, if you're not talking about George Martin, is a long is a long run. 
you know, it, it really is. And it, and uh, it, it takes it takes you over a span of artistic growth and change. You know, I think five albums, I think it was as good for Ted as it was for me. That, that, Absolutely. You know, a great, great run. Changed, you betcha. That he changed producers. And, you know, nobody works... Nobody works forever. I worked longer with Ted than I worked with anybody, and I made over fifty albums. So, you know, and, and it you was did great. come back. It you did come great. back in '88 for if you can't lucky. lick him, lick him, um, which of course includes Pat Dorby, Pat Torpy, God rest his soul, and Dave Amato. Yeah. Dave right. Amato, who's my right. right after you two today. So, should have had him on this call. Yeah. Um, talk you know, about- if you can't lick him, lick him. Another fabulous uh, title. And uh, and and a phrase I heard from Ted that I've always loved, which which is women. You know, you can't live with them. You can't live with them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you keep trying anyway. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but wait, but talk so to me about good. about if you can't lick them, because here it is, ten years after. In terms of your production style, had had you changed quite a bit having gone uh, through the Motley stuff and all that? And what was sort of that reunion oh. like? Was it about getting MTV singles? Was it about bringing back Ted's original sound? Well, talk to me a little bit about that album. I don't even. I have to tell you, in all sincerity, I don't remember very much at all. Um, but I was probably considering that I could be a little more uh, of a little more use to the project than I was in the beginning. But I was really lucky to, um, to have fallen in with Ted, you know, and, and had the opportunity to work with him because it saved me from making a, a, a lot of crappy albums in the beginning of my producing career and having to work up I mean, I got, you know, I got grade A uh, uh, artistry right away. And, and uh, you know, when you make a record and, and, and it explodes like that record did, um, you look good. <laughs> so You're, you I really, really do. I was really lucky. Yeah. I'll ask I you think this. I have to comment. I have to comment on that era. I think the, uh, the organic rawness, the absolute primal scream of what we celebrated when Tom and I first connected. We were younger. Um, there was a, a, an element of defiance that the industry didn't like what I was doing, but we did. Tom did. The band did. Lou did. Tony Reale was key at the point because we all loved yeah, this kind uh, yeah. of music, this rhythm and blues, raw, unafraid, uh, grinding, and yeah. very tight performances of music that we love. But by the time we got to Lick'em, I think we were yeah. all, and I, 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 I plead weakness. I, I fell for the BS that technology could be your friend in getting a right. guitar tone right. or getting a right. drum tone instead of just getting the tones we believed in and capturing them. We were going to digital. We were getting, uh, you know, uh, yeah. reprodu- reproduce. You could get, I don't even know what the terms are because I hate the technology so much. We can program, we can program John Bonham's snare sound every time he hits right. a snare. Well, it doesn't really come off that way. You got to right. be John Bonham to get John Bonham sound. You got to be Cliff Davies and, and Torpy to get Torpy sound. And I think Tom and I both 
fell to some degree victim to technology. Instead of going for the grunt and the grind of a garage band honesty, I think we played around with a little too much technology at that Could point. Could be. And the, you know, the final product didn't have that, that, that edgy, off, organic drum bass guitar sound that a drum bass and guitar player would produce. And technology, I think, uh, compromised that. In the same room. And also, mm-hmm. you know, when we made the first album, when we made um, Ted Nugent, Ted Nugent, with Stranglehold on it, <clears throat> there were three things you could do to the sound after you had recorded it. Three. There were three pieces of outboard gear. You know, there was a digital a digital a digital delay there was echo chamber and there was a uh, a phaser and that and that was it there was you know yeah. there was literally no other way to modify or affect the, <clears throat> the sound of the album that, that was it so but then by lick em, by by the time yeah. we were get, doing if you can't lick them lick them I mean, there was unlimited things you could do. And I think, like a guitar player with his first wah-wah pedal, he's going to use it more than he should. <laughs> and right, and right. I think when we got in the studio, there were so many options <laughs> that we were we were a bit too adventurous. And I love adventure. I love destroying status quo paradigms. And I love doing things that have never been done before. But some things are so pure, like a killer guitar tone, killer bass, killer drums, and a raw, throaty, soulful vocal that when you start adding a lot of technology to it, it, it pussifies it. I really believe that. I yep. agree. Yeah. I agree. Yep. Let, let, let me ask you and this, And that's Ted. one of the reasons why, why with total technology, with all, it, it all, all except for parts of the vocal, today's music leaves so much to be desired. <laughs> Yeah. Because, Tom, you got to get you a copy. Computer. I got to get you a copy of my new uh, "The Music Made Me Do It" because the title track, "Where You're Gonna Run to Get Away from Yourself," big fun, dirty groove noise. Some of these songs are just like the Ted Nugent that you met in 1974. Because I still have a rawness and a craving for those original, you know, gods yeah, and yeah, thunder, yeah. the Chuck Berries and the Bo Diddleys and the Howlin' Wolf and what the Stones and the Kinks and the Beatles did to that music, and what we did to that music. That I think you'd really, really like this new record. I'm very, very. Well, I bet I will. I oh, bet I, I will. I don't listen to much new music these days. I can tell you that. But you well, this one's got to... the attitude, doesn't it, Mitch? Oh, it does. It, it really is great. And I'm, but I'm gonna. Uh, I guess we'll we'll start wrapping up on this. But Ted, yeah. Uh, the simple question is, how important was Tom Worman to your career? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, I've always said it. it was critical because I I am not a detail guy. I'm a real raw, spontaneous, you know, uh, knee-jerk kind of guy, and that's why my guitar tone is so raw and knee-jerk. It's a, it's a Gibson through an amp with the old technology yeah. of, the, yeah. of the original Gibson pickups through an old Fender amp, and I, I am so primal that I don't stick around to scrutinize stuff. Basically, I'm sure I said no. this over and over to Tom and Tony. I go, well, that's the tone I've got. No, goddammit, get it on tape. It is, not, it is not that easy because what I'm hearing is, you know, 12 12-inch speakers and 24 15-inch speakers. And there's no microphone that could capture that. No. But that's the no. magic of what Tom and Tony did. They found where that sweet spot was because a mic can only get an inch. 
A mic can only listen to an inch. Now, we did a lot of room mics, and that did capture yeah. like the solo on just what the doctor ordered. What a great, great gig that song that was. We still play that song. But yeah. I credit. I said it when I started this this dialogue with you guys. Um, yeah. Actually, it's a trialogue. Um, that that Tom <laughs> was a member of the band. Tom's love of my music was is was as if he was a band member. And Tony Raleigh, don't forget that name. Tony no, no, loved no. the raw, unabashed, unapologetic uninhibitedness of my songs and the way we delivered them and the way we played them and they did take the time I'd, pl- I'd perform and then I'd go and have lunch or I'd go out in the parking lot and shoot my bow and arrow I'm not, I played the song I'm done I think I you, I think you shot it in the studio I, I think your bow and arrow and in the was, parking lot <laughs> it was in the studio the parking lot was I think at Conway but, but the studio definitely with the uh, with the deer. Yeah. That's right. I, mean, I had a deer you know, target in the studio shooting my bow and arrow. A target because deer. the mystical flight of the arrow helps you play killer guitar. That's great. <laughs> and, and, Tom, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, similarly, yep. how important was Ted to your career? Because when bands and, and labels come well, to you and say, well, he produced Strang- that song Stranglehold and Cat Scratch Fever. This guy's doing something right. How important well, was yeah, Ted to I, you? I, well, as I just said, he, you know, I was lucky to be uh, involved and attached um, be, because it made me look very good very quickly. And we made, you know, uh, album after album. And so, you know, not only did I have a chance to be associated with a, with a big hit um, artist and album, but the, to prove again, to prove uh, subsequently that it wasn't a fluke. So, you know, of course I'm grateful grateful to Ted and and I'm really proud, you know, that that I was uh smart enough to say we got to make this guy has to make albums quickly, you know. And let me that, put it in this term. It. I you know, I'm, I'm I'm we're old. I'm 75, I'll be 71. We've been down that road. We've been uh, our water has gone under many many bridges. Um the connection, <laughs> the friendship I use the term blood brother. My music is so important to me that the people who celebrate it with me show great respect for it and put their heart and soul into making recommendations that are organic to my musical vision. I use the aboriginal term blood brothers, and I don't use that for everybody, but I use it for people who I can rely on, who are friends, who will be there for me. And I've got to tell you, I've made some great friends, lifetime friends in this industry, and Tom and I were kindred souls. We believed in the freedom to make this kind of music. It was a defiant music. It was an outrageous paradigm-destroying music. It still is to this day. So that we both went on this adventure together, I think, qualifies us as American Dream musical blood brothers. And Tom, I've always considered you yeah. someone, not just a, a business partner, but uh, someone who really believes in this music that is my soul. It is me. I am that yeah. music. And so I appreciate well, that friendship yeah. very much. I'm uh, I'm honored and and uh, and uh, ha- happy that that you feel that way, and to uh, underscore Ted's sincerity and the validity of what he's just said. He knows I'm a registered Democrat. <laughs> that, that, sure. Uh oh, doesn't matter. And, Here and comes the still, politics, and he still bridges all gaps. He still bridged that gap. But but you know so, what? That's the great uh, thing about music. It. it 
it it it crosses all the boundaries that we impose on ourselves of Democrat Republican and this that's and that. Right. And, right. and that's the beauty of music is that it wipes that away and it ju- it effaces it and just makes us be fans. And that's the greatest gift True. of all. It really True. is. And and we bro- we both I know appreciate the freedom under which we operate in this country. That's so, right. Absolutely, that's what it is. A lot of people fly the flag. Think that a lot of people make just nasty, nasty allegations against me. The things they say about me are just hateful and dishonest. And Called misinterpretation. A lot of it. A lot of it's misinterpretation. Well, how about the fact that they actually put parentheses, they put quotation marks around things that never left my mouth. They, they, they attribute right. nastiness that I've never said in my life. And so uh, I know that a blood brother, I know that a person of honesty and goodwill and decency uh, sees the dishonesty of the media and the fake news and the political correctness and the hate that, exa- that exists out there. And I have friends, whether it's Tom Morello, who's uh, you know a hardcore liberal, or, or, or yeah. Wayne Kramer from the MC5, he's a hardcore liberal guy. We're still blood brothers. We're still musical comrades, and I think that's an important point to Good. make. Absolutely. Yeah. It is, and now we'll leave it alone. Right. And I have to say, I experienced the hate. I did an interview with Ted last week, and, and my inbox yeah. of, how dare you give him a platform? You're a horrible person. I got I got a whole bunch of that, and I was like, really? Yeah. We, well, but we didn't talk know, politics. We just people, talked rock and roll. I mean, what the, you know? Anyway, whatever. People forget about, uh, you know, freedom of speech and uh, the, what the Founding Fathers actually meant for us to do in terms of behavior <laughs> and freedom. And uh, and they uh, and and they get pissed and they. Well, all I can say is it's, it's 2019, it's and I'm having the time of my life. In I'm going to have the greatest <laughs> season of my life. I'm going to have the greatest tour of my life, and my middle fingers That's are nice. both on fire. And my freedom, my freedom flag, freak flag flies every day, nonstop. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and of well, course, uh, great to great to talk to to both of you, and I'm looking forward to hearing this. Yeah, point. I will have it up uh, by the end of the week, and I'll remind folks that Ted has the Ted Nugent Danger Zone with Tim Wells, a podcast for, for folks to check out. And I don't normally promote other podcasts on my show, but for Ted, anything. Uh, and wasn't this I'll, a fun yeah, I'll promote yours, Mitch. Uh, truth, logic, and common sense, goodwill, decency, positive energy, and, and real tolerance for positive energy is what we both stand for. So thank you for that. Uh, and people come to my Facebook. Tom, if you want to continue the guffaw, the belly aching laughter that we've always experienced together, go to my Facebook. My The people on my Facebook are some funny, okay. funny rock and roll maniacs, and we have a great, great time there. Good, good. Yeah, okay. And I hope fun... you'll both promote, when my book comes out, yes. I hope you'll both promote that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You let me know about it, man. I'll run it up the flagpole on my Facebook. I have like almost 4 million Facebookers. Before the... Uh, 2016 election Great. Had between 20 and 30 I had between 20 million Fantastic. and 36 million Facebookers Fantastic. Well, wasn't this a yeah, fun family really. reunion? This was this was great. Yes, Absolutely. It was. Absolutely. Yeah, always fun. welcome an opportunity to talk with uh, Tedley as I used to call him. Good okay. stuff, guys. Godspeed. God bless you right. and your families. Have the greatest summer of your life. And once again, Tom, okay. thanks for being such a positive thanks. force in my musical dream. And back to you, Mitch. Thank you very much for helping me celebrate fun. this stuff. Yes, and absolutely. And as we fun. say in Montreal, uh, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much for the, to both of you. And, and this, this, was, this was great. Bonsoir. <laughs> Good night. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. Godspeed. 
You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. 